0: Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. Now everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you who practice lawlessness. The Bible speaks many times about knowing both that the world would know who God is and also knowing as in a personal relationship. Um, We often think that knowing simply means head knowledge, but it's so much greater in this. And even as we just read in Matthew 7, the Lord is not looking at the works that they did that they are declaring to him but that he did not know them. And that's not speaking again of, of head knowledge. It's not that he didn't know of them. It's that he didn't know them personally. And so that leads into this next um, section that I want to get into. Um, and just going off of some of the conversations I've had with Jehovah's Witnesses. And inevitably, any group, any, anybody who denies the deity of Christ is going to point to a certain verse in John chapter 17 in verse 3. And the reason they're going to do this, again, kind of plays into what I've already spoken about. And and I've kind of already tried to lay the foundation to begin understanding who Christ is. Because as we looked back uh, and looked over the fact that every knee will bow to him, as it says in Philippians 2, verse 10. And... You know, the first one of all creation does not speak of him being first created, as we already discussed, but speaks of him being the one to receive all inheritance. And, and the reason is because all things are created through him and for him. And so as we get into this next section, and then also, yeah, that's right, even though we, we also looked at John one eighteen, where it says no one has seen God at any time, we discussed it how there is plenty of evidence in the Old Testament, um, especially in Exodus 24, Numbers chapter 12, certain passages like that, and even just really the whole Exodus passage of 19 and following, just where God is clearly seen, not specifically in the face, but he is seen, he has made his presence known, and that people see him in this. And yet, how do you reconcile that with John 1.18? Again, so as we have kind of already discussed this, the next part is actually knowing God. And that we've, we've kind of already begun that adventure, but uh, in John 17, three, and again, it it sort of plays on the, this two subject idea um, that I discussed earlier in Philippians chapter two, where, uh, you know, God highly exalted him speaking of Jesus. So you have God as one subject in the sentence and, and Jesus as another, right? So John 17, which is where Jesus is praying to the father, the night that he is about to be arrested literally the next chapter is him being arrested right begins the trial and then he is crucified literally on that day during sunlight because yes the jews count a day at sundown to uh, sundown so it it would be considered the same day anyways um so he is praying to the father right and he just had this whole um last supper with the apostles he has um discussed many things with them, John 13 through chapter 16. And then in 17, we get this unique view where now Jesus speaks to the Father. And it is the longest conversation we have between the Son and the Father. And But again, what they do, though, is they, they point out verse 3. And I'm going to read it real quick. This is the New American Standard. It says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, of course, what the object is is to isolate this verse from the context and essentially just point out the fact that, hey, there's you've got, especially the phrase, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There, there's that separation that they're going to point out. And so they're going to say, See, it says the only true God and Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ can't be the only true God. But like I said, anytime you want to understand anything, you always go back to the context, and then you also look at how Scripture harmonizes, because scripture, scripture will always explain Scripture. And because we don't believe that the Bible is contradictory in any way, we are going to understand that, hey, this has a certain meaning, and sometimes, especially there's a this separation of our culture, there's a separation of our uh, language, you know, sometimes we're going to meet, we're going to automatically take this to mean something that it did not actually mean to those who it would have been written for in the immediate context of this time frame. So with that, um, I wanted to dive into this section first and then point out some other things across scripture, because this is something that they're going to point out. And this is, like I said, this is going to be any, anybody who denies the deity of Christ is going to point to this verse. They're going to isolate it and they're going to separate the true God from Jesus Christ. So again, as I had mentioned before in the context, this is in this unique uh, prayer that we get to see between the Son and the Father. And so I want to back up to the beginning of this chapter, and as I read through it, we're going to read through at least the first uh, five verses and really look at it as a whole and ask some important questions, because if this gets raised, which it most likely will, right? You need to have a defense for the faith that is in you. And so, beginning at verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So there's a lot more there. And he even continues on all the way through the end of the chapter. It says, Long, glorious prayer. And so a few things you have to recognize right off the bat. Again, this is a personal conversation between the Son and the Father. No, he's not speaking to himself, kind of like what the oneness people would say. But you have to recognize that this is a a personal conversation. Uh, prayer. This is something that we don't normally get to see. And even throughout all of the uh, the Gospels, we rarely saw more than maybe a sentence of prayer directly between uh, Jesus and his Father. And so, beginning with that, you know, yes, he calls him his Father right off the bat. And we have to keep in mind, just as we had learned back in John 1, 14, for the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The idea is that now, and just as I had described back in Philippians chapter 2 in the Every Knee Will Bow study, he was in the form of God, but he took on flesh. He is both fully God and fully man. So how would you expect a man who is also going to be our representative, who is going to be our high priest, who is our king, Fulfilling all these roles, how else would you expect him to pray, other than as a man to the Father? Right? Because a lot of times they're going to say, "Well, well, if he was also God, how he he wouldn't even need to speak out loud. He just have the internal conversation." Well, even though God is that uh, perfect in communication, we wouldn't need to hear. You know, even as the Spirit knows our thoughts and intentions, God can read our heart. But, and yet we see this beauty of a outward speech again, as a man calling out to God in the humanity side of this. And so let's, let's really think about this. So not only does he say the hour has come. Yes, that's a, he's describing the fact that this was the moment. This was the time where eternity comes together in the sense of past and future where the cross being the central focus, where God having overlooked the sins of the world before, because of the fact that now God will be both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus, who would bear the sin of all those who would ever trust and believe in him. And that is what this whole point is. This is the hour. This is the moment where even it talks about Satan being defeated, right? He has overcome the world and this is, this is that moment that was planned from eternity past and now he has come to it. And so he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And I really want you to, to consider this concept. What creature, if, if Jesus is simply the first created being as the Jehovah's Witnesses declare, what creature has the right and authority to ask to be glorified, right? Especially as we learn the glory in verse five, uh, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. No creature can make that claim. So how then is it that the son now makes this claim? It's really something to consider. So, continuing on, verse 2, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, all created things, all even all humanity, right? Who is the one now that has this authority? And what does that authority look like? He continues, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So, not only is this an authority that, The son is declaring, right, that he has the authority to give eternal life. How does any creature have eternal life? In the sense of the ability to give it. It's only through God. So again, things you have to consider. And even those are the ones who are given... (coughs) The father gives to the son. So then you get into verse three and this is eternal life, right? So we just understood that in verse two, he may give eternal life. Verse three now describes it, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Have you ever considered the fact that eternal life is literally knowing God, And it's not simply God in the sense of the father. It is also the son. It's both. You have to know the father and the son. And again, it's the son who gives that authority, who has authority to grant you that eternal life. You can't know the father if the son hasn't given you that understanding a lot of responsibility that's a lot of authority that no mere creature created being would ever have and yet because as we have studied before the son is one with the father with the holy spirit in the being of god right they are not the same person though again we can distinct we, we can have the distinction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and still have one being of God because being and person does not have to be the same category. We are not saying one being and three beings or one person and three persons. We are saying one being and three persons. Again, and think about this. A rock has being, right? The qualities and characteristics that make a rock a rock, essentially, right? But a rock does not have person. So then going to the being of God now, that is the characteristics and nature of the being of God. You're speaking about eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, creator, sustainer, giver of life. These are all qualities that the Bible speaks about and actually defines as coming from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet again, we can distinguish between the three persons and see how not only do they all possess those qualities and characteristics, and yet they are three distinct persons. So then you must know the son personally. You must know the father personally. And it is the son, as I mentioned, and as this passage is saying, who grants us that understanding and something i want to point out here too so before i even move on into verse four this this phrase the only true god in jesus christ whom you have sent you know i think it's something like 35 times through the book of john the term sent is mentioned and there's one passage uh, if you flip back to John 6, that talks about this sending. In fact, this whole passage is, is truly amazing. Um, a lot of times we like to piecemeal this passage. Yes, later on uh, it talks about the eating of the flesh and drinking blood, which I know the, the Catholics tend to isolate. Uh, that's a whole other study. But since we're trying to, again, look at Jesus being the one who was sent, right, of the Father, and also this idea of eternal life is knowing God, Right? Knowing the Father, knowing the Son, and yes, even the Holy Spirit. Um, look over in John 6 real quick. And uh, look around verse, let's say, 35 real fast. and We're going to just go down for a few verses here. But as I read, I want to point something out. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will n- never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So remember, just as he was talking about in John 17, the Father giving the Son, all those whom you have given me, I have given them eternal life. So pay attention here. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. So again, we have another passage here in the same book of John, right? The same author led by the Holy Spirit, again, who defines that it is the one Jesus saying, uh, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, right? So that's how eternal life comes, and that eternal life, again, was defined in John 17 as knowing the Father and knowing the Son. But even here, he had pointed out, like I said back in verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and do not believe, so there is a believing in the Son that is necessary, right? And so anybody who downplays the necessity of knowing the Son downplays really and it does not have eternal life. That, that's cut and dry. And that's why it is so important that we must know who this sent one is, that we must have a proper definition of the triune God, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And in my previous reading, and something that I'd brought up in one of my conversations uh, with the, the JW Elder, um, there was a passage that I want to actually turn to, because it would be easy to say, well, this is this a new idea? Is it simply that the Son was sent in the flesh this one time? And yes, let me clarify real quick. I meant when he took on flesh. Yes, that was a one-time deal, and he still carries that flesh. He was raised in that flesh. The son still has the dual natures now, not mixed again, but the dual nature of the being of God and having taken on the being of man, right? Fully God, fully man. That is a proper definition, and that, again, is what Scripture says. Completely defines when you harmonize all the text and when you don't rip things out of context. So, but I want to turn back to something because I want to point out some a passage, um, and I'll be honest, even many theologians kind of don't piece these together. But we're talking about the one who was sent. We're talking about glory, right? As I mentioned in in verse uh, or chapter seventeen, verse five, the glory which I had with you before the world was. Um, Turn back to Zechariah chapter 2 because I want to point out something. And it was one of those that, in my uh, listening time, again, a lot of my personal time is simply listening through the scripture. It's hard for me to just sit down and read for the sake of reading, to read, to just draw close to God in that because honestly, I. If I sit down too long, I can fall asleep very easily. I <laughs> my day job, I don't even have a chair; I stand all day. Um, but so so a lot of times, my my devotion time is in just listening through the scriptures uh, to and from work, and a lot of and I do a lot of traveling at work sometimes too. So um, just getting that time. And I had remember listening through Zechariah through the book of Zechariah, but specifically in chapter two, I came across a section. Now, again, I'm reading from the new American standard, uh, and I want to, I want to point this out and then I want to show, um, essentially how the watchtower has attempted to hide this or change it. Um, but in Zechariah chapter two, um, I'm going to begin in verse six, just to give you the full context, um, And yes, uh, in fact, I'll just back up to verse one real fast. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with with me was going out and another angel was coming out to meet him and said to him, run, speak to that young man, saying Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, verse 5, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. So we're already getting this context of glory now. Verse 6. Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Ho Zion, escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 8. Now again, pay attention who is speaking for thus says the Lord of hosts after glory. He has sent me against the nations, which plunder you for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Did you catch that? When I heard this the first time I said, whoa, wait, wait, wait. let me back up again, verse eight for thus says the Lord of hosts after glory. He has sent me against the nations which plunder you. And of course, we can debate on what is this glory. I personally believe this is actually pointing to the glory that Christ receives again after glory. Again, 17.5, rest- restore to me the glory which I had with you before the world was. There's a restoration, right? He is in his humiliation. Humiliation. But he's about to return to the Father, to the right hand of the Father. He's about to be seated in glory again after the crucifixion, after his resurrection, and after his 40 days, essentially, before ascending back, as you would read in Acts chapter 1. He is going back into glory. And again, a full picture of that, if you want a full picture, is look at Revelation chapter 5. The Lion of Judah, the Lamb standing as if slain. Who receives the scroll from the one sitting on the throne who no creature, no one in heaven, on earth, or below could take from him, right? And yet here is this one, this son of man who approaches uh, and takes it. And then if you follow through the rest of that chapter, receives worship with the father. That's this type of glory. But there is his second coming now. So I believe this is describing his second coming. But like I said, even in the context, the Lord of hosts is speaking and he makes the claim, he has sent me. Who sends God? Who sends the Lord of hosts? One being and one person? Makes no sense here. None at all. But follow along in the context. Continue on. Verse 9. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Again, same one speaking. Waving my hand over them. That's a, that's not something we can do. That's not an expression of power that we have. Only God has that type of power. Verse 10. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming... And I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Verse 11 Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day, and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Three times, now in the New American Standard, three times declared, God is one speaking. And God is declaring, right? The Lord of Hosts is declaring that he has been sent. Something fascinating to consider. Who is this speaking about? It can only be speaking about the Son. It's the only thing that makes any sense here. And I believe even if you follow through <clears throat> the whole book of Zechariah, it's just not to go off too much on a tangent, but Zechariah is so fascinating. There's so much there. Um, and I, to be honest, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Um, but yeah, just so much. So anyways, fascinating to see, but of course we have to deal with the, uh, Jehovah's witnesses and their new world translation. You always kind of have to keep a keen eye and understand what is it they have? What is it, um, that their text says? Because it's it's easy just to argue over a single verse, um, but I want to read first from the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures. This is the uh, the green bind one that I mentioned before, that was published in the early 70s. Um, in fact, revised in 1970 CE, New World Bible Translation Committee. So this is pretty early on. This is not one you will find on there. Online version. I had it tabbed here, Zechariah two. So even in this one, they kind of tried to adjust. But let me read because it they, they miss it. So verse seven again. This is the New World Translation. The, apparently, the 1970. Uh, I wouldn't say edition, but the uh, public it was revised in 1970. So. Um, Verse seven, hey there, Zion, make your escape, you who are dwelling with the daughter of Babylon, for this is what Jehovah of armies has said, and then in quotation, following after glory, he has sent me to the nations that were despoiling you people, for he that is touching you is touching my eyeball, for here I am waving my hand against them, and they will have to become spoiled to their slaves, and then it ends the quote, And you people will have certainly know, and you people will certainly know that Jehovah of armies himself has sent me. So they try and end the quotation, right? A little bit ahead of time at the end of verse nine, but again, verse eight begins in the quotation, for this is what Jehovah of armies has said, following after the glory, he has sent me to the nations. Jehovah of armies has said, following after the glory, he has sent me to the nations, Who is sending Jehovah? Again, that's the 1970 revised edition. They don't usually carry that one. Um, So I want to show you even how they try and confuse it (coughs) in their um, New World Translation 2013 edition. So bear with me real fast. Let me pull it up. All right. This is, again, New World Translation 2013 starting at verse 7. Come, Zion, make your escape, you who are dwelling with the daughter of Babylon. For this is what Jehovah of armies says, who after being glorified has sent me to the nations that were plundering you. Quote, whoever touches you touches the people of my eye. For now I will wave my hand against them, and they will become plunder for their own slaves. End quote. And you will certainly know that Jehovah, Jehovah of armies has sent me. You see what they have to do? Almost just like run on. Introduction of what Jehovah of Armies is saying. The beginning of verse eight makes no sense because they're trying to avoid the fact that in the text it clearly says that Jehovah of Armies is speaking about being sent. He has sent me. So let me again I'll say it one more time. Verse eight in the twenty thirteen edition. For this is what Jehovah of Armies says, comma, who after being glorified has sent me to the nations that were plundering you. Quote, whoever touches you. All right, you see? It makes absolutely no sense. Because they're trying to hide the fact that if somebody was to read this, they would go, Whoa, wait a minute. How, how is God, right? How is God sent? How is Jehovah sent? That makes absolutely no sense. No, but actually it does. Because you must know the Son. This is the Son. And again, if you, as I had kind of mentioned in the No One Has Seen God, and I kind of began, right, in looking at even some of the passages in um, Judges chapter 6 with Gideon and that that passage where it is the angel of the Lord who comes and visits him, but then the text literally changes between the angel of the Lord and the Lord, but it's not changing, it's not a third person entering into the conversation. And then I pointed out in Exodus chapter 3, where it is the angel of the lord again the messenger of god literally right the one who is sent to give the message right in exodus 3 who stands in the midst of the bush and then it says god called to abraham or god called to moses from the bush and i was trying to point out this this idea that it is the son whose role it is essentially to bring us to God, right? To show us who the Father is. And so with that, let's go back to John 17. Let's at least look at some more things here. Um, Because it is so fascinating when you harmonize the text, when you recognize that as scripture being written uh, and loosely just off the top of my head, if I remember, it's like over 15, spanning over 1500 years, right? When all of this was, uh, written and then at the end, essentially collected together, um, you know, over 40 different authors. And yet we know that it is by the Holy spirit that it was by no interpretation of man, but that men carried along by the Holy spirit wrote these things down. Um, which I believe is second Peter chapter one towards the end. Um, but again, this is why it is so important to know Scripture. This is why it's not enough to simply select a few verses, to have your proof texts, and then to think that that is just enough to, to throw out at someone, right? It's so easy to twist and manipulate the scripture when you can isolate a, a verse. You know, the Bible wasn't written in chapters and verses in that sense. We didn't have that. It was a letter it was, you know, a scroll, and, you know, that's why he <laughs> that's why the apostles, when quoting from the Old Testament, don't say, and back in this, in chapter, you know, such and such number, uh, no, they just said it was written somewhere, right, or back in the, the prophet Isaiah, or the prophet Jeremiah, right, um, but you got to know these things, so again, looking back at John 17, because there's even more <clears throat> to point out, so Verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And if you remember what I mentioned, and we read through quickly, John 6, that work was the will of the Father, was to lose none and to raise them up on the last day. Right? And if Jesus, again, is the one who has the authority over all flesh, to, to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life, he's going to get that accomplished. But you must know him. You must believe on him. And even moving on into, you know, I've already kind of touched on verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, I did look, um, for example, the kingdom interlinear, the the Jehovah's Witness uh, Greek interlinear, um, does translate here the words will, I mean, uh, with you, with you, as... uh, beside you, uh, the, the the Greek term para, um, which is still fine. I mean, if you really think about it, <clears throat> you know, the son had a face-to-face relationship with the father before the world began. The glory with it, which he had, you know, they're, they're going to try and lessen it as saying, well, the, God has a higher level of glory, but then the Son has this this lesser form of glory. No, God has received all glory, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, or has all glory, I should say. Uh, but there's even, you know, I hadn't planned on this, but even if you turn over to uh, Hebrews chapter one real quick because there's another thing that that kind of points us out because the the goal of this was to know the son right through his word through the word that we have here and so hebrews chapter one real fast again this just kind of hits at the point of who the son is and why we look to the son why we honor the son Uh, even if i remember correctly in john five it says for those who do not honor the son do not honor the father but Hebrews chapter one, I'm turning there, because uh, one of the, one of the verses that really just, I thought was so fascinating. Uh, Hebrews one, and I won't go through the whole chapter, even though it's, there's so much here. Uh, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, through whom also he made the world and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high becoming, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they Oh, this plays so well into what we were reading here in John 17. I'll get back to it. But a few things to point out. Okay. Spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. That ties back to Colossians 1, right? Speaking of the firstborn, not first created, but firstborn in the sense of the premier one who receives the inheritance, right? Because, again here, through whom also he made the world, Speaking of literally creation. And then verse three, and he is the radiance of his glory. Let's, let, me, let me put this into a perspective that we can understand. Because um, I think this helps me to, to great, greater understand it. The physical star in our solar system, the sun, S-U-N, right? We do not have the, the ability with our natural eyes to stare at the sun. We simply can't do it. Our eyes would go blind. You mean you can sort of get a touch of it, right? Or a, a glimpse of it. Um, but if you tried to stare at it long enough, you'd go blind. Um, even just a quick, you know, one, two second glance, and you're you're going to see sunspots on your eyes for, you know, a few minutes. Um, because essentially the glory of that sun is so bright, Right? but we can see how that radiates, right? That glory radiates and literally illumines that which is around us. Um, and you can, you know, I was always fascinated by even just seeing like the, the sunlight pouring through a window uh, and, and <laughs> kind of seeing how the, like the dust particles floating in it and so, But we can see that. We can see the radiance of it. So we can't see the Father, but we can see the radiance of the Father in the Son, right? S-O-N. That's what this is describing. When God wanted to reveal himself to his creation, it was always the Son who is the radiance of the Father. It is the Son who came down that we could look upon now, that we could grasp and understand. So how amazing it is that we, that, that God even gave us this revelation in this this ability to, to know God, know spirit, right? Because one of the characteristics of God, John 4 says, for God is spirit. You must worship him in spirit and truth, right? We must know the truth, who God is. We must, and because <laughs> we are a physical nature, we are of flesh, essentially, it is only by spirit now, right? that we can even come to understand him. and But how do you do that? You look to the Son. So how amazing, right? Hebrews 3, I mean, chapter 1, verse 3, again, continuing in that, and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus even makes a declaration, if, uh, if I remember correctly, John 14. In verse 6, he says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me... You would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe the works. Believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. Because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So again, this all just ties together. This—he's exact representation of his nature, as I mentioned in Hebrews three. And just oh goodness, so much. So, but then even it, it continues on and upholds all things by the word of his power. Have you ever thought about this again? And I and I mention this because in Colossians one uh I forget verse seventeen, eighteen or something like that, but essentially when it's describing Jesus um, <clears throat> that he upholds all things, right and here it's mentioning it again um, that is like how how can a any creature, however great that creature is, how can any creature uphold all things? A creature is limited. God is the only one who is infinite in that sense, all powerful. So in verse three here in Hebrews one it's talking about the Son here and upholds all things by the word of his power. Because it immediately following says when he has made or had made purifications purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, right? Again, he ascended back to the right hand of the Father, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So this idea now of name, right? Because scripture ties together. We want to know the Son. Flip back again to John 17 and check this out. Continue on in verse 6. I have manifested Your name. Son speaking to the Father, right? I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Right? So he has manifested that name. Look down at verse 11 real fast, just for the sake of time. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me. Do they have the same name? Again, this ties back to Philippians chapter 2. that every knee will bow. God has highly exalted him and, at the name of, and bestowed on him the name above every name. Didn't we go over that? So the name that the father has is the name that the son has has been given here, right? This one who is fully God, but now also fully man. This mere man now, right? It's not simply a man, but he has the name, even of that which the Father has. We don't worship simply a creature. We worship God. Right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we worship the Son to the glory of the Father because we see this incredible work that has been done. And so, I know that was quite a bit just uh, flipping back and forth. And again, because the, the, the Scripture harmonizes. And so if you don't know the Son, if this is new to you, I would caution you. Continue seeking God. Turn and repent of your ways. As I had gone over the passage in John 3.16, right? You have to recognize that we fall short of the glory of God. We have sinned. That we don't even know Him Anymore. And yet it is in our brokenness that we confess our sins. And as 1 John 1 9 says, and he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. And speaking of the Son, right? And that's kind of the next thing I wanted to get into. Uh, not in this one, that'll be the next teaching, but because we must, you know, just as Paul said, we preach Christ. I meant to know nothing among you, but to preach Christ and him crucified. These are the two categories that we must know to not only disciple, but also to defend our faith. Because really, not simply just the Jehovah's Witnesses, but anybody who denies the Son or who denies the cross, the purpose, the effect, the efficacy of the cross don't know God plain and simple and so next time we'll look at the cross yet again so this is the power of the gospel